verse number 14 tonight. Revelation chapter number 3. And uh, I labeled Laodicea the church that thought they were good and needed nothing. That's literally what they were. And they needed a lot, and they didn't realize what they needed. We'll look at that tonight and see some things about this church. And as I've mentioned before, as we look at these churches, and this is the last one before we dive into chapter 4 and get to enter the throne room of heaven. I'm excited to enter the throne room of heaven in this passage But as we've talked about with these churches, these were literal churches in that day. And I believe that as we look at it, they were written to these churches. But I also believe that they're written for us to learn from as well today. I'm also a firm believer that this kind of, if you go through and a hyper-dispensationalist will go a little crazy with things. A dispensationalist will look and say that, these different church ages represent different time in church history, and I believe that that's pretty true. You really look at the church today, and I think the Laodicean church describes the average church today and where the church is today. And you'll see as we read here tonight, as we look at some things, the church of Laodicea, verse 14, the last of the churches, the last letters, it says, None to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. Did you notice that this is the first time the Lord doesn't say anything good about about this church? The other six, he starts out by commending them for something. He just says, I know your works. It's literally where he starts. He doesn't go into commending them for anything. It says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, I don't know if you noticed tonight when you got, um, my kids were a little disappointed that I did snacks tonight, the sandwiches and put drinks out. They, they're like, when dad does it, he doesn't put soda out. Yeah, it doesn't spill all over the floor. But anyways, um, I could have given you cold water tonight, but I thought for the message I would give you room temperature water. (laughs) Do you see lukewarm? That was just so you could get that right there. And there was none in the fridge, so it was a great sermon illustration all at the same time. So as you you drink your water there, that's your lukewarm to remember what this church was like. The Bible says, Um, I will spew thee out of my mouth. That's pretty strong. He says, you literally make me sick and make me want to vomit. As we look, verse number 17 says, because thou sayest, so this is why they're they're lukewarm. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have no need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. You know what the Lord's telling them? You want to really be rich? Let me tell you how to really be rich. You need me. Instead of thinking you're rich, you need me is what you need. And it says, And white raiment thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, a lot of people preach that verse right there. And they say the Lord's knocking to get into your heart. That's not what this is talking about. And this verse is taken out of context probably more than any other verse I know of, really. Now, is it a false statement to say that the Lord is there convicting? No, he is convicting. But this verse has nothing to do with him knocking on your heart trying to get you saved. This is him knocking on the door of his own church, saying, I'll come in and be there if you want me to be. That's literally what it's talking about here, and we'll talk more about this tonight. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and have sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Father, bless the next few minutes that we have tonight. I pray you'd help us and guide us. And I pray that we might even look at our own lives tonight 
and see if we are that lukewarm Christian. And if we are, I pray that we would change some things so that we don't make you sick. I pray that this church would always be a church that wants you to be a part of it and not one that you're knocking on the door to even come in. And what a sad state to not even realize that. Bless our time we have tonight. There's a lot here that, to cover. And I pray you guide my words and the time that we have and that you would be pleased and that you'd be glorified and we get something from this passage tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The city of Laodicea was founded by um, Aristarchus II around 253 B.C., and he named it after his wife. And so that's where the name comes from. It was on a high plateau area, and so it was well, it was very secure from the enemy because they had to climb up to even get up into the city. And um, one of the interesting things was that because the city was up, it didn't have water springs where it was. They literally, this one of the first, this was one of the first cities, they pumped water in. And they had from an area these hot springs that they piped in hot water six miles away to get to this city. And then the cold water that they pumped in was about six miles as well. The problem was, and I think this is kind of ironic, but it was these hot springs being six miles away and pumping the water six miles by the time the water got to them, it wasn't hot. It was lukewarm. And instead of having the cold, refreshing water pumped in because it was so far away, by the time it got to them, they had lukewarm water. So literally, the lukewarm is the city that had lukewarm water. It kind of fits, right? And so you think about it. But um, you're working on a hot, a hot day and you're sweating, and you want ice-cold water, and the only water you had is lukewarm water. Or you wanted to take a bath, and you use hot water, and literally you have water that's very lukewarm. That's literally, and no one, and you might, and in all reality, I don't like water. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like water. I drink about a gallon of water a day. And so you say, why do you do that? It's good for you to drink water. I only do it because I need to, but it's, anyways, I drink my water, I don't drink it for enjoyment, I drink it just to get done, and so I have a gallon thing that I drink, I don't drink it cold, I drink it just lukewarm, so I can get through it and get it done for the day, but if I'm working or anything else, I don't like to have lukewarm water, if I'm drinking soda, I don't like, anybody like hot soda, that's just awful, I don't see the point in it. And so as we look here tonight, we see that, so this city, yes, it was a nice city. It was even destroyed in a fire. Not a fire, sorry, an earthquake. And in that earthquake, as it was destroyed, it, they literally built back their city themselves and didn't ask Rome for nothing because they were self-sufficient and they could take care of themselves. They didn't need Rome. It's interesting they also felt they didn't need God. It's amazing how this church really fit the city in which they lived. And it seems to me like the city rubbed off on them more than they rubbed off on the city. And it's a sad statement for a church when the outside shapes that church more than God shaping that church into what he wants it to be. It's one of the problems I see with this church. And so as we look here tonight, we see there were some, th some things that the city was famous for. You got them there in your notes. Number one, we see finances. It was the center of the banking and finance world. They were known for their wealth and financial power. They were also, number two, it was known for fashion. There was this soft black wool produced there. It was a luxurious item of the day. And this is where all the newest styles appeared first. So some of you that like fashion, if you were around in this day, you would have been in Laodicea to get your fashion tips from them. And then thirdly, also there was the pharmaceuticals. There was a famous medical school there. And it produced a tablet that was sold all over the Roman Empire. This tablet was crushed, mixed with water to form a paste. And it was rubbed on the eyes to cure eye problems. Isn't it interesting? What did Jesus tell them? They need some eye salve. 
Do you see how he's telling them from their own? He's like, you need just how this will fix your eyes, this pill, and rubbing it on this paste on your eyes. You need something to show yourselves your true state. And it's just amazing to me how the Lord really took the things of that day in that, in that city and used as he talked to them about several things. So as we look here tonight, we're going to dive right in. And I could have labeled this message lots of different things. I did label it here, the fact that this city thought they were good and they weren't. I could have said, you know, Laodicea, you make me want to puke. That would have been a good title there. Because that's literally, that's literally what, it, what it said about it. And you ever, your stomach just get, Zane, you're already asleep? It's just amazing how Zane does that. He's asleep already. Did you wear that kid out today? And so I don't know how he does it. And he doesn't even know I'm talking about him right now. And so, wow. I tell you, if, he, if that kid has problems going to sleep at night, just, uh, just uh, put on my sermons and he'll be okay. So, good thing I'm used to it. I, if I told you all the things people have preached, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe me. And so... I'll say the first time I went to the rescue mission, someone didn't use the restroom. They used their in front right where I was preaching. I've preached in nursing homes where elderly ladies have ripped their shirts off and ran around the room. Yeah, uh, no joke. Yeah, you can close your mouth, Abram. Yeah, no, there are some things, some things you can't unsee, and that's literally the woman right in the middle. She says, I'm hot. I'm like, well, Lord help you. Well, maybe they can turn the air down. And so she helped herself out, and then she's running around the room, and she has the workers chasing her down, and I'm just like, what am I watching right now? What am I doing? And so I've had lots of things happen, so sleeping and all that is the part of it. So as we dive into night number one, we look at Laodicea's problems. As I mentioned, it, the Bible does not, Jesus does not commend them for anything. Now I think that if you were to ask one of the churches what one really should be commended by the Lord? I think this church was said, well, we're doing all these things. And the Lord doesn't say commend them for anything. And that's not the way the Lord really works with the other churches. As we look here tonight, you'll notice right away that's, that right away there's problems. Did you notice how this church is labeled? Look at the way it's labeled. And under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right? Now look at, go back to chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? Go back to the beginning of chapter 3. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis, right? Go back to chapter 2, verse 18. Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? Verse 12. And to the angel in Pergamos, right? And chapter 2, verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? Do you notice, now look back, and you might not think this is a big deal, but it says, under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Do you know what this tells me, letter A, as we dive in tonight? They had a problem of possession to begin with. You notice this was their church. The church of the Laodiceans. This was not Christ's church. This was their church. Do you see that right there? I think it's pretty clear right there. In all the other cities, I believe it was the Lord's church in each of those cities. And the Lord was in the church, right? If you notice later on, he says, I stand at the door and knock. He wasn't in this church because this was theirs. He didn't have a place in their church. And as we look here and we think about this, we must understand tonight the reason the church exists tonight. You know, we didn't do anything to make the church start. Do you realize that tonight? The church exists because of what Jesus Christ did. And I want you to understand something. The church is not a place for us to build up our name. It's not a place for us to do what we want to do. The church is a place. It's not our place to run it. It's not our place to dominate it. It is not, and let's be honest, it's not our church. It's not my church. It's his church. Don't ever lose sight of that. Jesus died for the church. He purchased it with his blood, which means the church belongs to him. It doesn't belong to you and I. It belongs to him. The Bible tells us in Acts 20, verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves 
overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. The church belongs to him. He builds it. He sustains it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 19, He said unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Not Peter. Upon the statement, Jesus is the Christ, is the Son of the living God. That church was built on Jesus Christ. And he says, and I will build my church. Who's speaking? Jesus is speaking. So may I just remind you, it's his church. Why aren't the gates of hell? Because it's his church. And then he's the one who gives the keys of the kingdom. He's the one who does these things. It belongs to Christ. It's his the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter number 2, verse 19 through 22, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for the habitation of God through the Spirit. We see that Jesus is the cornerstone. And as we think about these things, the church exists tonight for the glory of God. We are here for Him. That's why we're here. We're not here for ourselves. We're here for Him. Our duty in this place is to preach Him. In this place, our job to is Him. In this place, our job to promote Him. It's our job to publish Him. It's not church. It's not my church. It's church. He not us. We don't need to be like Diotrephes and try to have the preeminence in this place. John, Third John, verse number 9. We don't need that. That's not what it's supposed to be. Christ is to have the preeminence in this place. And you see, the first problem I see with the church in Laodicea is that it wasn't there. It was their church, not Christ. The Laodiceans. No other church is labeled that way. And that's why every word is so important when it comes to the Bible. Because a lot of times we'll miss little things like that. We see some of the problems that they had. First of all, they had the problem, problems with possession, letter B. They had problems with apathy. Verse number 15, the Bible says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert hot or cold. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. I mentioned to you how the water was in the city. was in the city, the Christians of that city were the same way. What this means is they had no passion for God. They became indifferent. They heard about what Jesus did on the cross and it didn't affect them anymore. It didn't help them to serve God. It didn't do anything in their lives. They reached a place where they were just going through the motions and it didn't matter. They lost everything. And they weren't even, they weren't cold and they weren't hot. They were just in the middle. And I want you to understand something real quick tonight. I've had, I had a few people, because I, uh, I try to explain the fact how, what, what I'm trying to do with the ministry God's given me that I want to be a balanced Christian. And so I've had some people, they've been like, well, you know, I've used that example. You have those churches that are all rules, 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 and no love. And then you have those churches on the other end that are all love and no rules. And I don't want to be the church with all love and no rules, and I don't want to be the church with all rules and no love. I want to be balanced like the Lord was, full of grace and truth. They're like, you're just trying to be lukewarm, and that's not the same thing. Big difference. And if you truly knew your Bible, you would know that before you make a dumb statement like that. So, But they're not even in the room tonight. Maybe they heard me online. But I'm just trying to let you know and understand. Just That's just the way it, just understand that, okay? And so as we look here, we see that they, you've got to understand when we look at this, isn't that, doesn't that kind of describe the modern church today? The apathy? We know that people are dying without Christ. What are we doing about it? Let me ask you a question tonight. How many of you believe that hell is real? You raise your hand. Who have you told about heaven lately? 
That's why I believe we're in the state we are today of the Laodicean state, because if we truly cared, we would be telling people the apathy that's there. How many of you believe that people around the world need to hear the gospel? Do you give to missions? Oh, you're like, Pastor, you're getting a little personal with things. I'm sorry, but do you care for your family members that don't know Christ? Does the preaching of Jesus Christ and the cross, does it affect you? When we have the Lord's Supper, do you actually pause to think about what the Lord's done in your life? Or is it nothing to you? It cost him his very life so that we could have life. Does it even matter to you tonight? Apathy is all around us. Just because you can sing a song or just because you can pray and sing in a church doesn't mean that a church is on fire for God. Show me who shows up for soul winning and I'll show you a church that's on fire for God. And I'll show you a church that's not. Not who shows up for the potluck. Who shows up to witness. We don't like hearing about those things, but it's important for us not to the point in our lives we're full of apathy. Get to the Lord returning. And I believe that we have this all around us. Apathy is a big problem. And when you think about the why is it a problem, and when a church reaches the point where apathy takes over, there's a couple of things that happens. Number one, first of all, it's a hard kind of church to pastor. The people might believe right, come into the buildings, but they're unmoved by the things of God. I don't believe we have a church like that. I believe we have some people like that in this church, but I don't believe the entire church is that way. But there, you can preach and preach. You can pray, have prayer meetings. You can do all these different things. And it's just getting to the point where some people will not be moved by the things of God. And they, they love that one hymn, I shall not be, I shall not be moved. It's a hard type of church to pastor. I always pray, people have asked me, well, pastor, I had someone just ask me a couple weeks ago, that like, when are you going to go pastor a bigger church? Like, I'm pastoring where God called me to pastor. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. They're like, do you ever put out your name places? out my name anywhere, and I'm not planning on putting my name out anywhere. If anybody wants to get a hold of me, they know how to get a hold of me. And I said God would have to write it across the sky. And I know one of you might run an airplane and have it written up there. And uh, then, then that might be a sign for me. But literally, the Lord would have to move me or the church would have to get to the point where it's unresponsive to the things of God where I can't help the church anymore. So the two ways. That's it. You say, well, what would you do? Well, God called me to this area. I'd just go start another church someplace else and see who comes along. But it's a hard thing to do. Number two, you also see it's hard kind of church to move for the Lord. You see, when you don't care, or you pretend like you care, but you don't care, it just, it's a tough attitude. How can you do things for God in a church like that? And I also believe that this kind of church, number three, misrepresents the Lord. Jesus was a man of passion. A man of passion. He showed it in his life and his ministry. His disciples were passionate men. And when his church acts like the Laodicean church did here, it gives a false impression of who Jesus truly is. Now, I know you look at things, and we go back and forth, and are there some things in this world we can be indifferent to? Yeah. When it comes to the things of God, can we be indifferent? No. No. We can't. 
What were the problems with this church? This church was full of apathy. It was their church. It wasn't the Lord's church. Letter C, they had a problem with blindness. Here's another example of Christians that were blind. It is possible for a Christian to be blind. You refuse God enough or you kick him out of his own church. They didn't even realize what was going on. They felt like they arrived. They felt like they were the greatest church ever. They had the money. There were other churches that were mentioned that didn't have one issue God condemned them for. He said they were small and all of this. They didn't have any money. This church had the money. This church had, um, the, they had all the goods. They had the best pews of the day. The most up-to-date sound system. They had everything that you could want. But the Lord looked at them and said, you literally have nothing. You're wretched. You see that there? You're, look at what it says there. Thou knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This church had no clue. And that's an interesting fact. How we see ourselves and how God sees us. That's where oftentimes people come to my office for counsel and things, and I'll be like, how's everything? Well, I think I'm doing all right. And I, I always say this. Let me rephrase that. How does God think you're doing? Well, that's a different story, Pastor. Because we never view things the way God does. And this church thought they were good, but they were miserable, wretched, blind to what was taking place. You know what I love? That even, remember when Sunday night talked about the book of Joel and God's judgment was on Israel. Even in the midst of judgment, God still gave them hope. This church has the most problems of the seven churches we've studied. The fact that it was their church, not the Lord's church. The fact that they were, had so much apathy in their church. They were blinded to the truth. It gives me hope that still in the midst of that, we see number two, that God had a cure for them. There was a fix. As we look here tonight, what was that fix? This church was in big trouble. This church was not what it should be, but not all hope was lost. And may I just remind you tonight that with the Lord, there is always hope. Isn't that a wonderful truth to know? That maybe, yeah, this world would say, just give up, just let it die, it's done. With the Lord, there's always hope. And as we look at this, we see first of all, his cure comes, letter A, with the fact that Jesus comes to them. The fact that he even comes is a miracle in itself and his grace on display. Notice how he comes to this church. First of all, number one, he comes as the amen. Do you see that there? The Hebrew word that means so be it or let it be so or it is so. It's used to express the idea of faithfulness and truth. When we pray, we end our prayers in Jesus' name, amen. Why do we say amen? Let it be so. That's what it means. Or that's, it's true. That's why in church every once in a while, it is okay to say an amen. That means that you're agreeing with what's being preached. That's okay. And it's okay to make a little bit of noise in church. We let babies do it. We can let adults do it too. It's okay. You can do it. When's the last time you said amen in church? Here, we're going to give you a chance, everybody, on the count of three. Let's just hear an amen, okay? One, two, three. Amen. All right, now let me give you a reason to say amen. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Jesus is King. Amen. There you go. You can do that more often if you'd like. That would be just fine. When he comes to this church, he comes to them as the amen. He also comes as, letter t- or number two, as the faithful and true witness. Now, interesting enough, doesn't this church have a flawed view of themselves? Right? 
Their vision of themselves is flawed. And Jesus wants them to know, yeah, I'm the true and faithful witness. I'm going to tell you how you truly are doing. Their testimony lied about who the Lord was, and he came to them to set the record straight for them. And then number three, he calls and he talks about as the beginning of the creation of God. This identifies Jesus as the creator of all things. Not a speck of dust can move in this universe without his permission. He's in control, and he knows all things. So as we look here at the cure, first of all, we see Jesus comes to them. Letter B, we see the fact that he has a word for them. What does he tell them? Let's look at what he has to tell them tonight. We see, number one, that Jesus tells his church that he wants them to be either hot or cold. Now, do you see, now that's interesting to note as you look there. He wanted them hot or cold. He didn't want them lukewarm. He would rather them be dead than be lukewarm. I'll tell you the truth. He wants his church to be hot and passionate for him. But he would much rather have a church either hot or cold than have that apathy and have a church that looks like they're hot and they're not. As we look at this passage, we see these things. And as Jesus says these things, you've got to understand something. We want, the church needs to be a place that people come to be healed. Isn't that what the hot would be about, right? And even, you know, you can even look at this in a different light. I was reading some commentaries, and it actually opened up my thinking a little bit further. We always think of hot or cold where hot is good and cold is bad. But if you're out working in the heat, cold water is good, isn't it? And there is nothing wrong with a church being a cold, refreshing drink. So being cold doesn't have to be a bad thing here. And the more I study that and think that out, I really think that's really what the Lord's talking about. Because I don't think the Lord wants you to be dead, right? He doesn't want a church dead. He wants a church to be the hot springs would bring healing to those that would go to them. And the cold water refreshes the weary soul. God wanted his church to be the church that could heal and the church that would refresh. I think that's an awesome way to look at it. And I never really thought about it that way before. And sometimes in those commentaries, some of them, I wouldn't read much in those commentaries. But I'm like, wow, that's an interesting take right there. And so just some thoughts there. He also tells them, not only does he tell me he wants them either hot or cold, but he says he wants to spew them out of his mouth. The word spew is a strong word. We don't really use spew much today, but literally it means to vomit or to throw up. Everyone knows what that is, right? I think we know what that is. He literally says, I want to vomit with your attitude. Do you want the Lord to feel that way when he looks at you and how you live for him? I don't want that. church that's like drinking wants to just spit it out what does that tell us that god can't tolerate indifference and apathy he can't he does not want us to be this way and i will i want to you know, understand something i don't want to be a part of a church either that is that way i don't want god to want to spit us out of his mouth because of the way we act we see he has some words for this church. He tells them he wants them to either be hot or cold. And uh, he tells them they'll spew them out of their mouth. And then, number three, he gives them a proper view of how they truly are. We've already looked at this in verse 17. It says, Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. The word wretched means troubled. The word miserable means to be pitied. They were proud of their wealth, but Jesus says they were actually poor, which means destitute and reduced to begging. That's how this church was in God's eyes. 
They were proud of themselves and the vision of themselves. And what does the Lord say? You're blind. You cannot see who you truly are. They were proud of their fashions and their fine clothing. But you see, the Lord tells them they're naked. Totally exposed for who they truly are. We see next... We see in letter C that Jesus tells them exactly where they can find all they need. We look at verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of who? Of me, Jesus, gold, tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with thyself that thou mayest see. We see that he tells them and as we look real close here, there's lots of things that he says, but he brings up the fact, first of all, buy of me gold tried in the fire. Does that sound like fun to be tried in fire? No. The trials that come in life and the things that come into life. And what he says is, if you come to me and live for me, you've got to understand something. That's what you need to do. This church looked on the outside like they had it all together but they are missing the one where they find all that they need. You've got to understand something tonight as a church, and I think you've got to understand that we need Jesus. Do we truly believe that, though? Because literally this church had money. Why did they need Jesus? They had the money. This church had all the best of everything, the best goods. It's one of the reasons why I think the Lord doesn't ever let our bank account go super high around here. I think that happens because he wants us to trust him. We always have enough to get by. Never big excess, just enough to get by. And the Lord always provides and he always takes care of it. It's amazing to me. There are so many examples to give you. And Russ and I have talked and I'll be here and I'll be praying that the Lord get, we're needing some money for something. And I, every time, Someone will come by that doesn't even come to our church and give a certain amount of money just because they felt the Lord wanted them to. The Lord always provides. But this church didn't need the Lord to provide. They had all the money. They had all the goods. I think that's one of our problems in America today. We have everything. We have 50,000 brands of cereal down the cereal aisle. We have thousands of meat options. We have every, soda. Look at all the different flavors of soda. We have everything. And I think that's one of the reasons why our attitude as a society, to, we don't need God. We don't need him for anything. And we push him out and we see what happens. Jesus tells them, where they can find all that they need. And what they needed, they needed Jesus Christ. Now, you'll notice in your notes there that Matthew 6, verse 19 through 21 are listed there. And um, those are not those verses. Caitlin put the wrong verses. So I want you to take your Bible with me to Matthew 6, because I want you to see these. Matthew chapter number 6. She put, that's chapter 16, verse 19 through 21. And so did I give her the wrong thing in the notes? Could be, but I do see Matthew 6 right there. So Matthew 6, verse number 19 tells us, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust and treasures, there will your heart be also. They were all about what they had. And doesn't that kind of fit this church? Because this was the Laodicean church, right? So where their treasure was, that's where their heart was. And their treasure was on all that they had, and Jesus was not their treasure. Because Christian, I'll tell you the best thing in life, the best thing you do, your treasure should be Jesus Christ. And that means your heart will go after him. He's the one we're searching for. This church missed it. Jesus tells them, hey, you just come to me. That's who you need. Just come to me. As we look here, 
And as we get ready to close here in just a couple minutes, we see letter D, that Jesus invites them to come to him. And then he gives them a much-needed word of advice. So he tells them the fact of what their problem is and what they're missing, but then he tells them a few other things, which is kind of a blessing to see in this passage. You see, he tells them, first of all, number one, he says, as many as I love. Do you see that in spite of their indifference towards him and their lukewarm attitude, their blindness, being wretched, all the things, he still loved them enough to tell them the truth? That's amazing to me. That a church that he isn't even welcomed in, he loved them enough to send them this letter. I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't write people off like we do. Aren't you? I'm very grateful for that tonight. We often will write people off. Jesus doesn't. Even the church, a church that was, should have been his, that he isn't even welcoming, that he's knocking on the door. He loves them enough to say something to them. We see number two, he uses that phrase there, I rebuke and chasten. And what that tells me is, as I read this here, as Jesus told them that he loved them a second ago, and just like he tells us that he loves us, he loves us like we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay where we are. I'll say that one more time in case you missed it. And I like that amen in that side room over there. He loves us like we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay where we are. Why he went to this church. He could have, but he did not. He rebuked and chastened. The word rebuke here, it means to convict or to correct. It's what he sends the Holy Spirit to do. The word chasten, we don't love that word chasten. And really, when we see what it means, to correct with blows. <laughs> that, that's not a word that we like, to chasten. And so there are some children that need to be chastened. But anyways, I won't go any further with that there. And then we also see be zealous and repent. Now, this is interesting. The word zealous is where we get the word zesty from. It means, this word zealous literally means to come to a boil. Isn't that interesting? The Lord tells them here, get on fire for me. Light, it, light up the stove, put the lukewarm water in a pan, and get it hot. And turn from what you're doing. Repent. I think we talked enough about repent on Sunday night. I May mean, I just remind you, repent is not telling the Lord I'm sorry and then continuing to live in your sin repenting and Christians need to do this. You know, we, we look at it and I I've got some pastor friends and things. They're 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 big on you you gotta re- and I don't believe this is true. They believe you have to repent of your sin in order to get saved. That's not biblical. And if you view things that way, you're you repent in salvation by turning from what you've trusted and turning to Jesus Christ. But I am a firm believer as a Christian, when we repent we need to turn from our sin and turn to the Lord. It's just like, let's just use the example, so when someone comes to Christ and they get saved, they turn from their sin to Christ, they're not going to know that everything they do that they've been doing is wrong. They're going to know that as they study God's Word. Like, I've had examples of that in our church. Someone will get saved. I've had people come to me several times through the years. Remember the first couple years of pastoring, a guy came up to me in our church, and he's like, that girl's shorts are too short. You need to tell her to wear longer shorts in church. This was her first Sunday in church. Don't look at her shorts. That's what I told him. And do you know what? She grew, and I don't think she ever wore those shorts again. Someone came into our church, and their hair, a guy, their hair was pretty long. Someone, Tell that guy to cut his hair. The Bible, And the Bible does say that a guy should not have long hair. That is biblical. That is Bible. Because there's supposed to be a difference between men and women. 
So where you want to draw the line on what long and short is, you can figure that out. You don't have to have a tapered haircut and look just like me or be like the po' boys back there. And so they got their haircuts matching their dad. You shaved the top too, and you really could have matched your dad. You guys could have all shined the tops and all been, you know, done it all together. But anyways, and where you draw that line on that, where, what long hair and that, but they're like, you need to, and I didn't. It's amazing though that person grew in the Lord and they cut their hair themselves. Because what happens is the Lord, and that's where someone says, there are people out there, and I don't even like talking about all these different things, but a homosexual can't get saved unless they turn from their homosexuality. That's what people say. That's not true. Because then every sinner, if you're a liar, you've got to turn from your lying before you can get saved. If you're a fornicator, you've got to turn from your fornicating before you can get saved. No, but what happens is after you get saved, the Lord's going to convict you. And then you repent of your sin to him. That's the way that works. A lot of people mess that up. You don't repent to get saved. You repent, well, I mean, you don't repent from your sin to get saved. You repent from what you believe and turn to Christ. As Christ works on your heart, you repent of your sin and get right with him about it. Does that make sense? It's the way it's supposed to be. And so, as we look at this, we see that the Lord, he invites them to him and he gives them this, this word. And then he tells them lastly, and then he gives them a promise. The promise to Laodicea in verse 20 and 21. We see the first thing he tells them is, I stand at the door and knock. That's just amazing to me that this church that didn't, that the church belongs to the Lord. And they literally kicked him out of his own church. And he just stands at the door, knocking. I'll come back. Just open the door. Just open the door. I'd be like, you don't want me? I'm not coming back. Good riddance. The Lord says, no, I'm there. What else does he tell him? Let her be. If any man hear my voice and open the door. Now, do you know, as you look at that, that didn't mean that everyone in the church had to, right? Literally what the Lord's saying to an indiv- any individuals in the church, if you hear me knocking and you, you open the door, I'll sit down and fellowship with you. The whole church might not want me, but you can want me, and I'll be there for you. Let her see. We see what he says here. Jesus was a good Baptist. Come on now. And we'll sup with him and he with me. Supper is what they ate. That was dinner time in Laodicea. They had supper. The Lord says, I'll come, I'll come eat with you. That's where we get our Baptist meals from right there, right? That we're being biblical. We're like, let's go, let's go have lunch. Let's go have dinner. Let's go do those things. But it's amazing to me that as we look here, Jesus tells this church, he tells them, literally, I'm knocking. And maybe the whole church doesn't want me, but maybe there's an individual in the church that wants me. Open the door. Let's fellowship together. I'm willing to fellowship with you. I want, think about it, I want to fellowship with you. Doesn't that remind you of what, what the Lord did back in the beginning? Adam and, Eve ha- Adam and Eve had fellowship with God and they ate the fruit and the fellowship was broken and God still came and he wanted the relationship. Why did he send Jesus? He wanted the relationship. Why does he come to this church and he keeps knocking? He wants the relationship and the fellowship. Let be like the Laodicean church. In all reality, if you were to ask my honest opinion about our church, I would say out of the seven churches that we've listed, I think there are bits and pieces of all seven found within our church. I wish we had none of this church in this place, but we do. And if it's in your heart, and if the Lord's convicted you or you've watched online, Let's get things right with him. And if it's been a while since you've let the Lord in your house, he still wants to come in. And he'll stay there. He's ready. 
He'll fellowship with you. He loves you. But he loves you enough to tell you what needs to be fixed and what to do. And next Wednesday night, we have uh, Vacation Bible School, so we won't have a service, but the following Wednesday night, we'll look at what happens immediately after this. And it's uh, amazing how this picture goes together. Because in all reality, you have the last church age, the Laodicean church. And the next thing that happens is that John is up in the spirit of God in heaven. And we see what takes place here in heaven, up in heaven. And then chapter 6 goes into what's taking place on earth during the tribulation. It sets off the final seven years and the judgment and how that all plays out. So we got a lot to see what the throne of God is like. What the 24, who the 24 elders are that are mentioned. Why 24? And I was talking, remember, what was it, a couple weeks ago, I went and picked Johnny up, and I was with that Uber driver. And we were talking, he's a Jehovah Witness. And we were talking, he's like, only 144,000 go to heaven. And I said, well, could you tell me where you get that number from? I don't know. I said, well, I said, in the book of Revelation, there's a passage about 12,000 out of the 12 tribes that actually turn the world upside down and get people saved. That's the only time I see the 144,000 mentioned. But that has nothing to do with people in heaven. That has to do with people witnessing around the earth. That's one of the questions he's going to go ask his uh, teacher or whoever it was. He hasn't come back yet. I'm praying. Pray with me. He had several questions after that night, that ride with me, that he was going to go ask his, uh, I forget what he called him, was it? His bishop, that's it. Yeah, he said he was going to go ask his bishop. And I said, you do that, then come back and explain to me what he has to say. And so hopefully he will one of these days. But there's a lot we're going to see in the book of Revelation. We'll see the one world government. We'll see the Antichrist trying to be like Jesus and take a death blow. And the false prophet will be prophesying that he has to be Jesus when he's not. And then we'll see Jesus bring it all to an end and close it all out. And we'll be done with the book of Revelation in about six years, three months, and two weeks. Father,